also Romans chapter 12. But I'm going to start off reading a, a selection of a few verses from Romans 5 here this morning. Starting at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Down to verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 of Romans. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That is, uh, that's our scripture reading this morning uh, from Romans. And I'd now like to uh, invite uh, Brent Mackey, one of our elders, to come up with today's message. Brent. Well, good morning, Auburn, in Zoom land. It has been a different morning, even different than, than last week. Our intention was that during this uh, lockdown, uh, we would do our service just like normal here. Uh, we just wouldn't have anyone in the pews, and it would all go th via the internet to your homes. Uh, but uh, as Brian has mentioned, Daniel's uh, music has been piped in, pre-recorded. And uh, so we're sitting here, and we don't get to hear Daniel singing because, uh, I guess, the way it's, it's set up. So we just know that you're hearing it, uh, and that we get the cue that it's over. So, so we're kind of like we're in a news station today uh, where we're breaking for commercials and things like that. Uh, so uh, I was saying to the guys when I came in this morning that uh, 35 years ago or whenever it was when I first had the opportunity to preach, um, I would never look at anyone's eyes. In fact, I would maybe look at their forehead as I spoke. More often than not, I would look over their heads at the back wall. But as the years have gone on and, and as I've developed uh, uh, in my gift of preaching, uh, I really count on being able to look at people's eyes and to have a conversation with you. And so uh, Barry suggested that maybe next week we can start bringing some cutouts of some of you and we'll place them in the pews for whoever is speaking so that we can make eye contact with you. But uh, 
For today, I'm going to be speaking hopefully through the camera and not just to the camera uh, and come into your living rooms uh, and uh, bring the message that I believe God has given to me to give uh, for our church for this, for this year. I was uh, reading some ac- excerpts from a book uh, by a guy named Tom Parker, and the book is called In One Day. Uh, and, uh, in his, and he's writing from a, an American perspective, but I think uh, you can relate to these uh, here in Canada, I believe it's is true, just the numbers aren't as, as large. Uh, in his book, In One Day, Tom Parker notes that every day in America, 108,000 of us move to a different home. Every day we purchase 45,000 cars and trucks and we smash up 87,000. Every day, more than 6,300 people get divorced, while 13,000 get married. Every day, Americans eat 75 acres of pizza, 53 million hot dogs, 167 million eggs, 3 million gallons of ice cream, and 3,000 tons of candy. Every day, we do many different things and make numerous decisions. And uh, the reality is that life is filled with decisions. Uh, every one of us made decisions already this morning uh, and choices. You have uh, chosen what time you're going to get up this morning. You chose that you were going to uh, connect with us via Zoom. You have made a choice as to what you were going to eat, what you were going to wear. Uh, and every day, there are all sorts of choices that we have to make, from the music we listen to, to the TV shows that we watch, to the books that we read. And as life goes on, there are significant choices that we make. Who our lifelong friends uh, will be. Um, how we are going to invest our time and energy uh, in life. And so the reality is life is filled with choices. And some of them are easy. Some of them are simple. Some are made for us. My son Jack is with me and he didn't have a choice this morning. He got dragged along. So it was an easy choice for him to make because I just dragged him. Uh, Some choices are inconsequential. But other choices are quite significant, are, are very important, have huge consequences. Some decisions, we struggle and we struggle with how to make. Some choices we have to put very little thought into. Choices are part of life. They're necessary in life. And show me a person who struggles to make a choice, and I'll show you a person that struggles in everyday living. You know, it's, as I said, it's kind of odd looking at this sanctuary, and it's pretty well empty. There's uh, five of us, six of us here, sorry, I can't see Alex's head uh, behind the partition. There's only six of us here, and yet I look at this sanctuary, and I think it'd be really cool if there could be a list uh, of this sanctuary and the sanctuary that used to be across the parking lot in the old chapel, and in the Sunday school rooms, and in the youth rooms, if we could have a list of all the choices that have been made, the important decisions that have been made over the years uh, through the ministry of this church. There's been lifetime decisions as far as marriage is concerned. There have been choices that are spiritual, eternal uh, in nature. And as I think about that, I can't help but think of a day, and it was way too many years ago, it was during my first year of university, where I was faced 
with having to make a very important choice. And the choice was this, how serious was I going to be concerning my choice for God? During the first year of university at Scarborough campus, uh, University of Toronto, I was involved in the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship Group. And one of the things that we would do is weekly we would break into groups of four or five people and we would pray. Pray for each other, pray for our group, um, pray for the school, pray for friends. And uh, on this one particular day, I was sitting at a picnic table outside one of the main entrances to the campus. And uh, we were praying, and I was praying kind of like what you would do, if you're me, at a restaurant where the waiter or waitress has brought most of your food and is going back to get the balance. And someone says, okay, well, let's pray. Who's going to pray? And so we pray knowing that the waiter or waitress is going to come back, most likely in the middle of the prayer. And so I often will pray or listen to the prayer with one eye closed, one eye open, watching for this awkward moment when this waiter or waitress is going to come back. And that is most likely how I was praying during my InterVarsity Christian Fellowship uh, days at the uh, Scarborough campus. And on this one particular day, we're praying, and I've got my one eye opened. And of all people, a friend of mine who I played rugby with, club rugby, high school rugby, I played high school football with him, uh, he was known as the party animal, came walking towards me. He represented peer pressure to me. Uh, He represented all the temptations that came along with playing club sports. Uh, And he walked up to me, and I was so fearful what he was going to say. And he kind of looked at the picnic table, and he looked at me with my one eye open, (laughs) And he said, Bent, because that's what he called me. Bent, what in the world are you doing? At that moment, I was faced with a choice. And running through the back of my head was a verse that I must have learned from Sunday school. Couldn't really remember where it was found or who it was that said it. But I got the words in my head, and it said, Choose this day whom you will serve. And so I was faced with a choice. Right there, first year, university, 18, 19 years old, sitting on a picnic table. What was I going to do concerning my choice for God? And many years later, here we are three days into 2021. I have to ask myself that same question. And this morning, I want to ask you that same question. What are you going to do concerning your choice for God in this coming year? And I realize that there would have been a lot of people who would have excused me for not making a serious choice on that day. I was in my first year of university. I was still young. There was all sorts of time to come where I could contemplate and make that serious decision. You know, I've had this conversation with more than one of my my children. 
when I've pushed them or challenged them uh, on something to do with their Christian life. And, and, and the response back is, Dad, I'm just in high school. High school students don't do those kind of things so seriously. And maybe you're thinking, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in lockdown. My job is in trouble. I just started a new job. I, I'm, I'm neck deep in my studies. I got young kids. I'm too old. We can all think of excuses. But this morning, I'm going to ask if you'd be willing to put those excuses aside and consider the question with me that I've asked already. What are you going to do concerning your choice for God in this coming year? And maybe it's not a question that you've thought of very seriously or, or, or very often. Maybe you already think you've chosen God, but maybe you're not really quite sure what all that entails. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to ask some questions. And these are, these are heart-probing questions. And it's really difficult for me to ask you to set aside any distractions that you have this morning. Because I realize, because I've watched online church services, and it's easy to be distracted. Because you can watch what's going on on the computer screen and have your cell phone in one hand, or you can nip into the kitchen to get another cup of coffee, or you could be rolling on the ground playing with your kids or your grandkids while the, the sermon is, is off in the background. But I'm going to ask, would you be willing to set aside all the distractions and to honestly answer these questions as I ask them to you? What preoccupies your heart, rules your thoughts, and rules your time? What is it that compels you, controls you, motivates you? What takes first place when it comes to your schedule? What gives you a sense of worth and defines your identity? What would others say is the most important thing in your life? I truly believe that if you were willing to listen to those questions and to answer them honestly, that you will reveal for yourself whether you truly have chosen God, whether you have exclusively chosen God, how effectual your choice for God is in the way that you live your life. And so we have some questions that we are left facing. What's involved in choosing God? Why choose God? Maybe we should begin with, what does it mean to choose God? And to answer those questions, I want to look at the story 
And I'm going to do something that I hate when anyone else does. I'm going to take you to the very end of a story. I want to look at the story of the guy who was the one that actually said those words that came into my mind that day when I was sitting at a picnic table at university. At the story of Joshua. And I want to look at the very last chapter in Joshua, Joshua 24, and if you've got your Bible, open it, please, and we're going to look at it here in a second. I want to look at Joshua's final words to the nation of Israel. I don't know about you, but I have a fascination with last words or or final words of people. I've shared many times in sermons over the years the final words of a friend of mine, Andrew Temple, who died of brain cancer. Uh, and was very intentional to send emails and give notes to his friends and his fellow church leaders. And he had final words for his kids, which are just heart-wrenching. My dad was very good to leave in final instructions so that when he passed on, things would be easier for my mom uh, and uh, his family. Scripture is filled with final words. And we can look at the final last words of Jesus as he spent time with his disciples or as he hung on the cross. We can look at the final words of Paul as he found himself in prison, as he he sent that second letter to Timothy. But today I want to look at the final words of Joshua. Forty years in aid to Moses, 25 years he led the Israelites. Uh, He led them through the conquest of the promised land. And now, 110 years old, He realizes his time on earth is coming to a close and he calls all the people together to give him one last word. What would he say? Well, we can see what he says in Joshua 24. And let's let's just read the first 15 verses of of Joshua 24. Uh, Verse 1, Then Joshua assembled all the tribes of Israel at Shechem. He summoned the elders, leaders, judges, and officials of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. I assigned the hill country of Seir to Esau, but Jacob and his family went down to Egypt. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I afflicted the Egyptians by what I did there, and I brought you out. When I brought your people out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. But they cried to the Lord for help, and he put darkness between you and the Egyptians." He brought the sea over them and covered them. You saw with your own eyes what I did to the Egyptians. Then you lived in the wilderness for a long time. I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them before you, and you took possession of their land. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam. So he blessed you again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. 
The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did also the Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Girgashites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you. Also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow. So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them, and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord, and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River, and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And so what did this 110-year-old leader have to say to his people? Was he calling them together to complain about all of his aches and pains? Or was he, was he calling them to, to share with him his unfulfilled dreams? Uh, was he going to brag about all of his accomplishments and his lifelong service to the Lord? No, not Joshua. This humble, dedicated follower of God calls his people together and he says this to them. You have a choice to make. You can continue to serve God after I'm gone or not. But you have to make a choice. I find verse 15 strange because it's different than the paraphrased shorter version that came into my head sitting at that picnic table that day. The words that came to my head were choose today whom you will serve. But in full context, Joshua says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And he goes on to list a number of options. And I read it now and go, what is Joshua doing? What is he saying? Like, is he really giving them a bunch of options to choose from? What does he mean? I think, first of all, we need to understand that Joshua is being very practical and he's not beating around any bush. And as you look at verse 15, there's a few things that I want to pull out about it so that you can understand what Joshua is doing and what Joshua is saying. First of all, he is acknowledging that the Israelites have competing rivals for their devotion. Joshua is, is telling them that, that you can serve the gods of your forefathers. The gods uh, from uh, Babylon, uh, the gods from Egypt. You, could, you can serve the gods of the Amorites in the land that we find ourselves in now. Or you can serve Yahweh. So he's acknowledging that there are competing rivals for the Israelites' devotion. But I want you to see as well... Just because Joshua is laying out all the options for them doesn't mean that he is encouraging them to see each op- option uh, is equally acceptable. I often say to my kids when they have a, a choice to make, uh, a, a, a decision that, that has to be made, I tell them, list all the options down. Make columns. Do the pros and the cons. And I think that's what Joshua is doing. 
there's all these options that you can choose from. You, you're going to serve one of them. Lay them side by side so that you can see the pros and cons of each. Not that you'll see that they were, are equally acceptable, but you're going to see quite clearly that there is one that is the right uh, choice, the right decision to make. And what Joshua is doing by doing this in verse 15 is he's calling the Israelites to something greater than just a verbal decision to choose God. In verse 14 and verse 15, you see this word that comes up again and again and again. Serve, 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 serve. The word serve here literally means to be fully devoted to. And it's qualified in verse 14. It says about this serving God, the phrase, fear the Lord. This, this choice to serve God is one, a choice that's made in sincerity. That, that's made in an awareness of who it is that you're actually choosing to serve. And it's qualified by the word faithfulness. So, so this, this decision, this, this choice is one that is a faithful choice. And so Joshua is calling them to something greater than the half-hearted devotion that characterized so many of their lives. Serving God, devoting yourself fully to God, meant giving up ownership and authority of our own life and handing it over to God. It, it, it's about taking your relationship with God seriously. Joshua is telling his people, stop, stop playing games. You need to get serious about God. And if you were to continue reading in, in chapter 24, you'd see, you'd see that Joshua tells them, and making this decision isn't easy. You need to consider the costs. Yes, there are blessings for obedience, but there are curses for disobedience. But you need to make a choice and move forward. And if you were to take the time and read those verses I just referenced uh, after the verses uh, that we've looked at, maybe your thoughts would be, well, maybe not making a decision to serve anybody is the best, is the safest, is the most comfortable choice. But I think there's a further intent in verse 15 of Joshua. And what he's telling his people is not making a choice is not an option. And it's funny how things haven't changed so many years later. Because there are people who believe that living independent, uh, independently and, and being free to make their own decisions is, is a way of life, is a, is a path of life. That we can actually live life not serving anybody. But Joshua would say that's not true. We all serve somebody or something. Even in the everyday aspects of life. If you pay taxes, in a way, you're serving the government. If you work for somebody else, you're serving your boss. Uh, If you're working hard to get good grades, you're serving the school, the teacher, the grades. But it goes even deeper. 
I would suggest, if you were willing to be honest and answer those questions I asked earlier, those things that motivate you, that control you, that take up most of your schedule, those people that control you, that motivate you, that take up most of your schedule, that person or that thing is what you serve. And Joshua realized there are all sorts of options to choose from. And he tells us people make a choice. Choose today who you will serve. And so many years later, nothing has changed. Just like the Israelites, there are competing rivals that are clamoring for our loyalty. Yes, there are other world religions, perhaps more relevant for us. There's the worldly gods of success, of accumulation, of, of power, of comfort, of public approval. So many options. But it's interesting, the Bible tries to make it easier for us. And it narrows the options down to two. You can either choose to serve God or you choose to serve the world. So why choose God? Why choose God? Does Joshua get his people together in front of him and just expects that they're going to follow him because of his lead or blindly take a leap of faith? No. Joshua doesn't challenge his people with the words of verses 14 and 15 until he takes them through a stroll down memory lane to remind them of the faithfulness and the grace and the love and the promise and the hope of God. If you were to read those verses again, verses 1 through 13 in chapter 24, you would realize that all of a sudden Joshua fades into the background. And all of a sudden, it's God talking to the people. 17 times we find the personal pronoun, I. I called Abraham. I promised him a special blessing. I freed you from the slavery in Egypt. I led you into the promised land. I conquered the nations and the enemies that came against you. I did this. I did that. I did this. I did that. And then Joshua steps back into the scene in verse 14. And he says, now, therefore, in view of everything that God has just reminded us concerning his faithfulness, his grace, and his mercy. Verse 14, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Kind of sounds like what Brian read to us earlier in Romans 12. First 11 chapters of Roman, Paul reminds us of what a great salvation we have, of all that God has done for us, how he has taken those who are sinful, who are evil, who don't even give consideration to God, and he has made it possible for us to have a right relationship with him. And Paul says, in view of all that God has done, in view of this great salvation that we share, he says, in view of all of this, sorry as I turn my page, 
in view of all this, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And, and the, the word proper can just as accurately be translated, this is your strategic worship. Or it could be translated, this is your logical worship. Why choose God? Because it's the logical, strategic response to all that God has done for us. No other choice makes any sense than to offer our entire selves as a living sacrifice to God in view of what he has done for us through his son, Jesus. So what does it mean to choose God? It it means to be fully devoted to him. Why? Because of what he's done for us. It, it, It only makes sense that that be our response, that be the choice that we make. And so what does it involve? What does choosing God involve? And, and I could give you a whole bunch of answers, but I'm just going to give you a few as we close off here. The first thing that it involves is an end to fence straddling. Choosing God is an exclusive commitment. And you understand the picture of fence straddling. One foot on one side, one foot on the other. It never goes well. Choosing God involves an end to fence straddling and realizing that this is an exclusive commitment. You know, Josh, uh, is, Josh Lott is here this morning, and many of you probably have heard that Josh got engaged two days ago, and congratulations again, Josh. Um, one thing, Josh, that I learned very, very early Uh, in my marriage to Alice. And it sounds really silly to say this, but it's true, and i got to say it in in the context of what I'm talking about. I learned right off the bat, in fact, before we got married, Alice would not tolerate me having a mistress. Right? Kind of makes sense, right? Josh is is laughing for those of you who uh, uh, can't hear him. Alice would not tolerate me having a mistress. So why would we think or expect anything less of God? And yet, me included, on one hand, I'll say that I'm fully devoted to God. I choose God. While on the other hand, I cling on to all my worldly idols. So many of us will say that I want the life that comes from being fully devoted to God and yet, out the other side of the mouth, we talk about how we desire the things that the world has to offer. We have to put an end to fence straddling. And that leads us to the second point. What does choosing God involve? It involves ending fence straddling, realizing this is an exclusive commitment. And for that to happen, it, it requires us to root out all that hinders our choice for God, our being devoted, aligned, committed to Him. We have to take sin seriously. And I don't know what sin might be in your life. I only know the sin that's in my life that prevents me from being fully devoted to God. 
You can't be involved in sexual immorality and at the same time be truly devoted to God. You can't be cheating on, on, in your business and at the same time be truly devoted to God. You can't be blank, and I'll let you fill in the blank, and truly be devoted to God. We have to root out the sin that hinders us. And as well, we need to remove those things that have taken God's rightful place in our life. And, and we define those as idols. They take God's place. Again, I don't know what your idols are. Whether they're people or, or places or things. But you know what they are. I know what the idols are in my life that I need to consistently knock off the throne and make sure that God is sitting on the throne of my life. But if we want to be truly devoted to God, we have to remove all those things that push God away, that remove him from the proper place, sitting on the throne of our life. And then thirdly, we need to make our choice and we need to pursue that choice with all energy, with all effort. The second excerpt I had from that book reads like this, as you stand on the brink, well, I guess we're in 2021, the greatest decision you will make in this coming year has nothing to do with what car you will drive, where you will live, or where you will work. The single greatest question you will face in 2021 is this, are you going to make loving, serving, and obeying God your highest priority? Or are you going to allow your life to be once again swept away with the endless activities and concerns of everyday life? You know, I look back to that picnic table experience I had in my first year of university. I wish I could share with you that I came up with some profound statement that I said to my friend Rick that transformed his life forever. But I didn't. What I said to him was probably just trying to get him to keep moving on. I eventually drifted away from the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship Group during university. Didn't drift away from God, but second and third year at at U of T, I didn't really have much to do with the group. I look back now, I wonder what things would have been different How would God have used me if I had made a serious choice concerning my decision for him in that first year of university? You know, D.L. Moody, he's one of those heroes of the faith who, if you were to list all of his accomplishments for the kingdom, the list would be very, very long. He was challenged early in his ministry by a preacher who said this, the world is yet to see what God can do through one person who is completely committed to him. That became D.L. Moody's goal. And the question I have for us this morning is, what would happen if we were that person who fully fully committed ourselves to God? What would he do in and through us for his glory and for the sake of his kingdom? My prayer for all of us is that we choose to serve God this coming year. Father, we thank you 
for this challenge from, from Joshua. Lord, it is tough, especially in the context of where we find ourselves right now. Where fear and lack of normalcy just has thrown so many of us off course. God, would you remind us afresh of all your goodness and all your love and all your mercy and all the things that you have done for us. And God, would we make that choice like Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen.